great. Uh, anyways, back to it. Um, so this morning, we're going to be talking about correcting uh, our opponents with Christ-like conduct. And before we really dive into the sermon, I want to pray and uh, just ask the Lord to be with us in our time. So let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, please be with us. Lord, there have been distractions and frustrations, but uh, God, your word is powerful. And uh, despite technical issues, God, uh, I've already been praying, and I know your, your spirit has been at work already among us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would continue to uh, be ministered to by your Holy Spirit. Uh, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So, so as I was uh, looking at this passage, as we talked about it in Bible study Wednesday night, and as I was just like meditating and thinking about it, um, when we think about conflict, I, I hope that uh, I'm not the only person who thinks about the year 2020. Uh, COVID, racial tensions in America, mask or no mask, election, all the crazy stuff wrapped up in one year. And I, I remember... Uh, particularly for me, it was a rough year because I kept getting torn into these uh, dis discussions and uh, debates about the race issue. Uh, and, and a lot of times I felt as a person kind of torn between two friends or, or two groups of people that I loved dearly. Uh, one group um, was more of my white uh, evangelical Christian friends who were you know, asking me questions. How do you process this? How do you deal with this? Um, is there a conspiracy going on? Are they trying to funnel Marxism into our church, into our country? Is this really as bad as it seems? Because you don't seem like a guy who's experienced racism. We don't have racism in our churches. Is this something we really need to address? And, of course, I would talk to them about it and kind of share my thoughts, and I'd get challenged and pushed back, and we would be back and forth. But then some of my black evangelical friends and even some of my more progressive friends would argue there's white supremacy everywhere. It's been masked. It's finally coming to light. The churches are missing the point. The Christians are missing the boat. Fox News is their, their worldview. We've got to do something about it. And so then you've got this like war that I'm stuck in. And I'm arguing with these guys some of these points. And I'm arguing with these guys some of these points. And what it turns out is that I ended up not even being Christ-like towards brothers and sisters in the Lord. I would get angry. I would get frustrated. I would get snarky. I would look up scriptures to try to make you feel bad. Then I would look up scriptures to make him feel bad. I'd read these books and these articles just to prove people wrong. My favorite pastors and authors are writing blogs about each other, naming each other's names in books and podcasts, and it just felt like, what is going on? Something is wrong. And I think this passage reveals what was going on. Not, not only was America at, at in tension with one another, but we as believers were. And I think if we're honest, we all tend to get caught up in ourselves when we're in the midst of conflict and opposition. And so uh, what Paul is telling Timothy here is don't get caught up in yourself. When facing opposition, God has called us to correct our opponents, people we disagree with, in a Christ-like way. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is how to do that. How do we do this? And so the first thing we're going to see is that God empowers us to put off sinful actions and attitudes as we face opposition. God has called us to put off sinful attitudes and actions as we face opposition. Uh, the first thing that he calls us to put off in verse 22, he says, flee youthful passions. He calls Timothy to flee youthful passions. And in conflict, we know youthful passion gets stirred up. And the primary way we see it is in pride, self-ambition, 
I'm right, you're wrong. I've got the best ideas. I've got the most brilliant thoughts on this matter. And then it shows up in exaggeration. Oh, here's what you believe. I'm going to add a little bit to it to make your argument look worse. If this is what I believe, I'll add a little bit to it to make sure I look better. Youthful passion, then, when it comes to conflict, we could probably argue shows up in at least two ways, fight or flight. The people who like to fight, they get snarky. They get harsh. They get rude. They get disrespectful. They jump in on every comment, and they want to pull up quotes and make you look like a complete fool. They really want to flex their muscle and make sure you know you lost this debate. I was right. You were wrong. But the flight mode is also just as youthful, just as childish. Uh, it could be prideful. I look down on you. I don't have time to deal with your little problems. I don't have time to engage with you. But it also could be fear. I'm scared. Maybe people won't like me if I jump in and actually say something about this matter. But the point is, at the heart of it all is selfishness, self-preservation, or pride. And a lot of times when we look at young people, it's all about them. They think the world revolves around them. They think they're, they're indestructible. They want to be heard. They want to be known. But what Paul says, and, and uh, I think we need to take heed, is to flee youthful passions. I'm a young guy. I need to flee youthful passion. But some of you all who are in your 50s, 60s, been saved a long time, you too need to flee youthful passions because they can be stirred up in us in times of conflict. We were watching a, a movie last night called Joseph, and uh, it was a cartoon version of the story of Joseph. And when I hear this word flee, he's a perfect sermon illustration. Potiphar's wife kept trying to come on to him and on to him, and finally she grabs his clothes and says, you are going to lay with me. And he says, no, I'm not. And he flees. He runs from the scene, cloak still in her hand. And that's what we need to do. When we see youthful passion rising up in us, we need to flee it, not play with it. But then in verse 23, what else do we need to put off? He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And we've all seen that, yes, there are foolish things we get caught up in. Paul is not saying don't deal with false teaching. We need to deal with it. In fact, earlier he says bad talk and this false teaching will spread like cancer or like gangrene. So he's not saying ignore false teaching, pretend it's not there, and go on about your life. But what he is saying is don't get caught up in foolish, ignorant controversy or, or speculation or philosophizing about things that you have no business talking about. And uh, 1 Timothy 1.7 says this, they understand neither what they're saying nor the matters about which they make confident assertions. It's those conspiracy people. It's those people who talk about heart motives, but they don't know the heart. It's those people who want to dive a little deeper in theology than what the text says, and they want to argue on those. They want to argue the white lines instead of the black, the black words on the page. And we've got to be careful that we don't become people who get sucked in on that all the time. We've encountered those ourselves. We've, we've been embroiled in those, uh, a few that I can think of. Jesus' skin color is what? And these people will get so caught up. He's black. He's white. He's this. He's that. We don't care. We don't care what Jesus' skin color is. We care about what he did for us on the cross. Some other ones. Should we wear a mask or no mask? Some people have left churches and fought each other over should we put a mask on our face or not. We don't have to fight and endlessly debate those things. Should people take a knee to protest racial justice 
Are they going against the flag? Are they going against the military? Are they disrespecting our country? We don't have to argue that. I, you don't have to know my opinion. I don't need to know yours, and we sure don't need to fight over it. Should we obey incompetent government leaders, people we disagree with vehemently? Those are, the, those are the type of questions that you can sit around and argue all day long, at work, at home, on social media. Are you loving or not by wearing a mask, doing this, doing that? But at the end of the day, if these pull us away from the gospel and the word of God, if they lead us to quarreling, Paul says, have nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. And when you ask why, why not? Why not just argue about this stuff? It's fun. I like to debate. I'm a debater. But why not? Because he says here, you know they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Now, you all might be sitting out there thinking, good thing I'm not the Lord's servant. I'm not a pastor. But I think this applies to all of us. We're all servants of the Lord, and we all need to put off quarreling. And when I think about this, this debating and this quarreling, it's kind of like if uh, Kim taught our girls to pull weeds from the garden. If she taught Sophia and Joanna how to pull weeds, she'd show them the little green ones, pull them all the way up by the roots. Eventually, everything to them is going to look like a weed, and the whole garden's going to be pulled up. And every time we jump into a controversy or jump into a debate, we start to develop this cynical debating spirit to where everything looks like a debate. We need to have an opinion, a strong, firm opinion on everything. We need to argue about everything. We need to get in every comment war. We need to jump in at every conversation at work, and then we become quarrelsome people. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. What's the point of winning a bunch of debates if we lose people along the way? In our quarrelsome culture, Christians ought to be more known for how we love than how we fight. And sadly, we all know those Christian people that we know more about what they're against than, than the Christ they're for. We've got to avoid being those people. It's the same for all of us. There's not a person in this room who was brought to Christ or brought out of error because you yelled at them and talked to them harshly. It's just not the case. People are won by our love, not by our anger. So I want to ask you, are you a quarrelsome Christian? Don't take your word for it. Ask your wife. Ask your friends. Ask your children. Go back and look at your social media. Are you a quarrelsome Christian? And if you are, confess that to God and then study Jesus' life and interactions and prayerfully strive by grace to be like Christ. That's what Paul is calling us to here, and I think we all need to search ourselves. I know I've been convicted over the past two years because I was working toward a quarrelsome spirit, but the word of God, my brothers in Christ, held me accountable, and now I'm learning to put these things off, and I hope that we as a church can be those same people. But as we are called to put things off, we are also called to put on godly character. It's, it's one thing to put the bad things off, but we've also got to put the good things on, the right things. And so we see here, Paul t tells Timothy, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So he, he tells us what to pursue, and it, it would be easy for me to just give you a list of things, like here's how to be righteous, here's how to love, you know, but I actually want Christ and his life to, to model for us how to do these things because all of these things are rooted in Christ and rooted in the gospel. So think about pursue righteousness. 
First and foremost, we are righteous because Christ has done what the law and its righteous requirement could not do for us. And how did he do it? He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He did all things right to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf so that our accounts credited with his righteousness. And in light of that, flowing from that, we pursue righteousness. What does it mean to pursue righteousness? It means to open God's word, to be convicted by what God's word teaches, to strive by the spirit, by grace, to obey every aspect of this. In the midst of conflict, it means to do these very things that we're reading about this morning. What about, uh, what about faith? Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the object of our faith. Faith itself is not about us, but about Christ. We look to Jesus. Faith itself is looking away from self and looking to Christ. Faith is a gift from God, not of ourselves. We're saved by grace through faith. And in light of that, we pursue faith. Every single day, we fight to behold Jesus more. We fight to rely on him more. We fight to believe him more. Just as Satan whispered the lie in Eve's ear, he's whispering lies in our ears to push our faith away. But that is our foundation. There are agents of Satan out right now trying to uproot our faith. So we have to pursue faith, especially in conflict with false teachers, especially in conflict with people who oppose our faith. What about love? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We love because he first loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whoever believes should not perish. God first showed us love, not just as our example, but as our power so that we can go out and love. As we seek to live out the two greatest commandments, our love for God grows and it spills over into our love for our neighbor. But not just for our Christian neighbor, not just for our Republican neighbor, not just for our Democrat neighbor. Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So we, we love because we're first loved. We pursue love and then we pursue peace. Not a single person in this room was a friend of God from birth. The Bible says we were hostile to God. Those who live according to the flesh are hostile to God. While we were still enemies, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And he gave us peace with his Father. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility, not just between us and the Father, but us and each other. So we pursue peace along with one another because of the peace that we've been given in Christ. And so you can see Christ is not only our example, he's our power, he's our reason for putting these things on. And then as we pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, it will turn into kindness for everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. As we pursue the inward virtues, as we walk by the Spirit, as the Spirit bears fruit in our lives, it will show up in our actions. It'll show up as uh, we're kind to people, as you remember the kindness of God led us to repentance. Our kindness and our conflict, Lord willing, will lead people to repentance and faith. Our, our ability to teach, while that's primarily for elders, your ability to handle the word of God correctly can lead people away from error and lead them to truth. Uh, your ability to patiently endure evil, 
Jesus is the prime example for that. He was led like a sheep, silent before the shearers. As he's going to be slaughtered, he doesn't utter a harsh word or a disrespectful thing at all. He goes silently. He endures evil. He's spit on. He's beat. He's bruised. He's mocked for you and I. And then he calls us to endure just like that. If they treated me this way, they'll treat you this way. But we have the power and the ability in Christ to patiently endure evil. And we know from, if you've been in our Bible studies or just been around grace for a little while, we know our Savior was gentle and lowly. He didn't break the bruised reed. He didn't put out the smoking flax. Rather, he corrected us in gentleness. He doesn't just do it with gentleness. He says, I am gentle and lowly. The Christ that we believe in, the faith, the Christ that we behold through the eyes of faith is gentle. So everything he does flows from gentleness. So one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. So when we correct our opponents with gentleness, we are more like Christ and the Holy Spirit than we ever imagined. That's countercultural, though, isn't it? But we are to counter the culture with our godly lives. But as you hear this, uh, this should sound impossible. It should feel impossible. I don't know about you, but I struggle to handle conflict with my wife and children in this way, let alone people who don't love me, people who despise me. And yet, we are called to do this impossible task. But we're not able to do it without Jesus. It is impossible without Christ. But if you believe in Christ Jesus, if, if the Jesus that I've shown you this morning dwells in your heart through faith, if, if by the Spirit you've been given a new heart and been brought to peace, you too can do this. Go back with me real quick at uh, look at verse 22. He says to do all these things along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And one of the best questions we got in Bible study the other night is how does someone have a pure heart? How can you have pure motives? The answer is regeneration. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not by righteous works we have done, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. John chapter 3. How do we see the kingdom of God unless we are born again? When we are born again, when we are given a new heart, we can be among those who are blessed to have a pure heart, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. We are given a pure heart, and then as we live this out among believers with each other who call on the name of the Lord, who, who seek his face from a pure heart, we can do this. But if you have not believed in Jesus, if you do not have a pure heart this morning, if you've been trying to win people by your clever arguments, if you've been trying to bulldoze people to get your agenda, here's the answer. Call on the Lord. Call on Christ Jesus, the righteous, the loving, the peace-giving, the faithful, the kind, the, the righteous, the just Savior that we have been looking at this morning. Call on him who patiently endured evil so that people could be saved, who is correcting you, his opponent, right now with gentleness. Call on him. Call on the name of the Lord. And Christians, those of you who are in Christ, this is monumental for us. This is so monumental. It comes through walking by the Spirit day by day in community with God, in fellowship with God and with his people. We can't do this alone. We can't do it without God. We cannot do it without each other. Some of the most bitter people I've seen are those who profess Christ but hate the church. They don't have any joy. They don't have any hope. They don't, they don't have any happiness 
because we can't do this alone. We've got to be together. We've got to pursue Christ together. And as the Spirit takes the Word and applies it to our hearts, as we live this thing out together, as we pray and we look to Christ and we strive to obey His Word, we begin to grow. Like that little sprout that comes out of the ground in the beginning of the spring and bears a harvest at the end of the summer and the early fall. Little by little, we grow. We look like Jesus. We change. And the good news is this doesn't just apply to opponents. It applies to your everyday life. Think about how your marriage would change if you could interact with your spouse in the way Paul has laid out here. Parents, think about how you could raise your children if you lived this way, this kind, righteous, gentle, loving way. Employers, think about how your employees would feel. Think about the culture of your job. Coaches, think about your athletes, how they would respond. Teachers, think about your students, how they would respond if you operated in these ways. This doesn't just have to happen with opposition to the faith. This is any way, any time we face conflict. Think about your Facebook conversations. Think about your posts. Think about just all of life, how different we would be, how great life would be if we could just strive for this and God granted us the ability to do so. But in all of this difficulty, in all of this impossibility, maybe some of you are wondering, what's the big deal? Why? Why can't I just win the debate? Why can't I just crush somebody? I'm right. I've got the Bible. I've got the theology. I've got the worldview. I'm more mature than them. I'm smarter than them. Why does this all matter? And it matters because of the end of verse 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The reason this matters is because God may perhaps grant them repentance. That's a tough doctrine to wrestle with, isn't it? You mean to tell me God has to be the agent that brings forth repentance? God has to be sovereign even over someone's repentance? Yes. And if that's the case, we cannot bulldoze people into genuine repentance. The anger of man will not produce the righteousness of God. Parents, you can't beast your children into obedience from the heart. We can't push people to repent and truly obey God. It's not our work. It's not our task. We cannot do it. We can't regenerate hearts. We can't change people. So if we want any hope in all of these conversations, in all of this opposition, in all of this conflict, God may perhaps grant them repentance. How? Through us handling conflict the way he has laid out for us. The, the, biggest, uh, the biggest irony is that though God grants repentance, he uses us. He uses little old weak people like us to be the agents of change in people's lives. What would repentance look like? What, what would it actually look like? Number one, we see that, it, that they, would le they would be led to a knowledge of the truth. You want to know a reason to avoid foolish speculations and controversies? It pulls you away from the truth. If you continually give someone the truth when they open their eyes, when God shows it to them, they've got the truth you've handed them. Not the debates and the speculations and all the arguments. They'll remember the truth because God is using you to sow the seed so that he can give the growth. That's why we avoid the foolish stuff. 
because it can lead them to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses. That means they may sober up. When you see Christian brothers and sisters or even just people you know in opposition to you talking crazy, you may wonder, what, is, what has gotten into them? Why are they like this? They're, they're not normally this way. It's because they're, they're not sober-minded. There's something wrong with them, but God can bring them to their senses. They're no longer going to seem crazy. They actually sober up in a sense. But then they also escape the snare of the devil. They're trapped. Their foot, you think of an animal running through the woods and their foot gets caught in a trap. They're done for. They have nowhere to go. But God can take them out of the trap. He can release the chains. You, there's a song, Break Every Chain. God can break the chain. The Bible speaks to us as being slaves to sin and chained to a master. God becomes our new master. He releases us from sin. It is God who does this. And some of you may be wondering, though, what? I don't have this sort of compassion. I don't want my opponent to, to repent. They deserve what they get. I feel like I should just win the battle. God should just shut it down. What about the imprecatory psalms? Like, shouldn't we just shut it down, let them go, let them fall away? I don't think so. I think what Paul is showing Timothy and what he's showing us here is that we need to develop a Christ-like compassion for our, for our opponents. He says they are in the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. They're prisoners of war to the greatest enemy of the cross. That should give us compassion. Why? Because that was us. Go read Titus chapter 3 and read who we were. Read 2 Timothy chapter 3. See who we were. We were once enemies. We were once slaves. We were once children of the devil, sons of disobedience. We need to remember that these people are truly trapped by the enemy. But also we need to share God's view of eternal death. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He does not delight in the enemies that we wrestle with dying and going to hell forever. He does not delight in it. And Proverbs tells us, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, lest God be angry with you and turn his anger away from them. We don't rejoice when our enemies fall. We don't rejoice when someone on the other aisle of the political spectrum gets shut down and proven wrong. We don't rejoice when someone is made to look like a complete idiot because they have a stupid worldview and they're arguing about dumb stuff. Because the reality is we could all be trapped in that if it weren't for the sovereign, loving grace of God. We all were that before the grace of God showed up. We need to remember where we came from. Uh, as, I, as I read this, I think about the Apostle Paul. Surely he remembered his past when he's telling Timothy this. The killers, the opposition, I was the, the theor theological, theoretical opposition, but I was the physical opposition because not only did I argue against everything Jesus taught and everything his apostles were about, but I was killing them. I would gladly take the clothes of somebody while they threw rocks. But God showed up in my life, not through people arrogantly screaming at me, but the gracious mercy of God. And that's what we're called to here. So, so as we wrap up this morning, um, I want to remind you that when we look away from ourselves and we look to Jesus in our conflict, we can face it in a Christ-like way. We've got to look to Jesus in the midst, I'm talking in the middle of the turmoil, in the middle of the conversation, the debate, in the moment. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus 
and we can change things. But if you've got your Bibles, please flip with me to Matthew 9. I want to show you something beautiful. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 35. And, and the reason I want you to read this is, one, um, this is the desire that God stirred up in my heart to church plant. It was this very passage. Um, but also, this is just a perfect example of what Jesus is calling us to, what Paul is calling us to. When you're there, say amen. All right. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. At first glance, we feel so sorry for these poor, helpless, harassed, innocent people. But those are the very people that opposed Christ. Some of those very people were the ones who yelled, crucify him. When he went in the synagogue, those were the very people who argued against him. And yet he looks at them with compassion, showing his compassion by healing their diseases and afflictions. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They're like those college students whose worldview is completely jacked up because it's being shoved down their throat somewhere. It's like those misbehaving kids who have no parents. And they're just out doing their own thing. They have no guidance. They're like sheep without a shepherd under a corrupt religious system that is leading them away from Christ. He feels compassion for them. And then he calls his disciples to have compassion as well. He says, pray for them. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. And hopefully they didn't think they were exempt. Oh, so I'm praying for God to send them. No, Jesus was reminding them, you're part of this. And we are those disciples. We're the descendants of those disciples. When Jesus prayed in John 17 to his father, he wasn't just praying for them, but for us. We are these laborers. There is a harvest in Danville. There's a harvest in Bergen. There's a harvest in Harrodsburg. God is preparing the hearts of some of his fiercest enemies right now to respond in repentance and faith to the gospel. But we are the ones he's using to bring the message to them, and we're going to be met with opposition. But if we meet it with the way that we've seen in Christ's life, if we meet it in the way that Paul has called Timothy to meet it today, this morning, God may very well use us to grant them repentance. By grace, we can respond in righteousness, faith, love, and peace. By grace, we can be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil and correcting our opponents with gentleness. It's going to be by grace, by grace, by grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it's, uh, it's by grace that you are going to make us a church that handles conflict and opposition in this way. And God, I believe boldly, I pray boldly that you will do that at Grace Church, that you will do that in me and in, in my family and in the ministry that we are desiring to start. God, I pray that it would impact our personal lives, our family relationships, everything, Lord. I pray that we would be countercultural people. We would look so different that when people look at us, they have to glorify you. They have to give praise to Christ. They have to say something is different about them. 
because there is, because you, by your spirit, are at work in us. Lord, starting with me, bring us to repentance and faith. Bring us to obedience in this text. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for Jesus who makes this possible. Lord, I pray that some may for the first time be beholding Jesus with faith. I pray that you would bring them to this obedience. And then for us who have been around a while, for those who are mature saints but have been struggling with youthful passion, Lord, that you would teach us to put it away. We thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you for the body and the blood of Jesus that was shed, not only as a model or an example, but as the real power that enables us to live in this way. It's in Christ's name, amen.